Welcome to the Torah Guide, a podcast where we explore how the Hebrew Bible is all about Jesus and meditate on what it has to say to us. I'm your host, Aaron Dranoff. Does the Hebrew Bible, or Old Testament, say the Messiah will come twice, or is that a surprise plot twist in the New Testament? In this series, we've been working to uncover the main point of the Hebrew Bible, and we're seeing that it's all aiming towards a person, the long-awaited King of Israel, who will be a prophet like Moses, and so much more. We know this person as Messiah. He is what the whole narrative seems to be building towards. But we can actually be even more confident than that. The authors embed their own interpretation of what the Torah is about, So that's what we're going to look at today, these moments where the authors interpret their own story. And we'll see that these really important moments where the authors frame the whole story, they frame it around the Messiah and his second coming. Let's see how. So just to remind you guys, in this series, we're unpacking the teachings from our animated short series. In real time right now, we're also releasing a series of short one-minute animated videos explaining how the main point of the Hebrew Bible is to point to Jesus, the Messiah. And in these podcasts, which line up with those videos, we're diving deeper into the teachings. So if you haven't seen those videos yet, you can watch them on YouTube in the playlist called The Torah's Messianic Trajectory. And they're also on Instagram and TikTok. We've already got eight of the videos finished and posted, and we're working on releasing the next one for late December. So you can actually watch the poetry video, the one that this this podcast episode is about. It's already been released. Then after this series, the next series we're going to be doing is about a really important pattern in the Hebrew Bible, which we'll be calling the Priest-King series. In that series, we're going to look at how in the Hebrew Bible, humanity was created for a certain position, a job. And Adam and Eve's sin left the job, the position, open. Then we're going to see how every person in the Hebrew Bible who gets the spotlight is given a sort of trial run in that position. But ultimately, they all repeat Adam's sin and leave the spot open. Only one person in the Hebrew Bible perfectly meets the requirements of that position, the Son of Man in the book of Daniel, which of course actually finally takes place when the Son of Man comes in the life of Jesus. So that pattern about new Adams or new candidates for Adam's job is maybe the most important and sadly often misunderstood way that the patterns in the Hebrew Bible point to Jesus. So I'm really excited for that series. I've been studying this for a couple of years and I have pages and pages of notes ready to go. And I've actually already written the first two scripts for the animated videos. They're a little bit longer. So right now the videos for this series are one minute long. And in that series, they're going to be about three to six minute long each video. And this is where I need your help. All of our videos and podcasts are totally crowdfunded. And right now we still need some more funding to make the next series. So if you don't want a long wait time between this series that we're wrapping up and the next one, please consider making a donation at thetoraguide.com slash give so we can get to the Priest King series right away. Thank you. All right, so let's take a quick moment to summarize what we've uncovered in this series so far. We started by noticing that the original arrangement of the finished Hebrew Bible, which is still the Jewish order today, if you were to open up a, uh, a Jewish arrangement of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, um, you'd open it up in these three sections, the Torah, the Prophet, and the Writings. And these are the same divisions that Jesus read scripture in. He refers to it with synonyms for these three sections. So the Hebrew Bible that Jesus was familiar with was the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. 
same book as the Christian Old Testament, just in a different arrangement and divided differently, at least according to the Protestant ordering of the Christian Old Testament. And the Hebrew Bible begins with a narrative that continues through the Torah and is finished halfway through the prophets at the end of 2 Kings. And there are several writings that pop up in the Torah and former prophets before the narrative ends, like legal code, and poetry, and proverbs, but they fit into the story. A lot like how if you were watching a comedy movie and then one character grabs a guitar and starts singing about something that's going on in the movie, it wouldn't mean that you were watching a concert. If you told your friends you went to a concert, you'd be lying to them. You didn't go to a concert, you watched a movie, and in the movie, someone sang. It would just be part of the movie. In the Torah, when there's laws given, it's for some of the people in the story, given by another person or people in the story. And it's similar with the poems. Poems are delivered by someone in the story. So if you're reading the Torah, you're reading a narrative and there's poems inside. You're not reading a compilation of poetry. You're reading a story and in the story there's poems. So right away in the Hebrew Bible, to track what it's about, we see that there's a plot conflict, suffering and death in the real world. And the Jewish people are then introduced in Genesis 12 as the first step in resolving that plot conflict. Then the Jewish people were given a law code. They were supposed to shape their lives around the Torah. But at the same time, the law code in the Torah wasn't the end goal. It's not the purpose of the Torah. Even in the Torah, it's clear that the end goal was the future restoration for the people of Israel and all of creation after Israel breaks the Torah. Later on, prophets called the restoration that the Torah looks forward to, they call it the new covenant. And they tell us it's ushered in by the Messiah. Isaiah actually says the Messiah is the covenant. And we saw that in the Torah, still in that first major section, there are two people, Abraham and Moses, who tower above everyone else in the narrative. And there's a comparison between the two of them that's built into the text. We looked at that comparison and it shows us that life and righteousness come from having faith in God, not from keeping the law. And we looked at Moses' life and saw that he is so special to God that God made a promise to raise up a new Moses who the people will have to listen to or die. Then we saw that the prophets picked up this promise, the second section, the prophets, picked up the promise that God made for a new Moses and gives us some really powerful and meaningful descriptions about him that were ultimately brought about in the life of Jesus. We took a, a mini look at that, but we're really going to come around and how the life of Jesus fulfills all of this at the end of this series. So now we're going to pause following the narrative and take a look at some of the design features that the authors placed into their work to help us interpret the narrative and to make sure we're understanding it correctly. So in the Torah, every time the story shifts gears, there's a poem. It's actually very similar to how musicals work. In a musical, when a dramatic moment happens that the writer wants you to meditate on, there's a song about what happened in the past that helps you process and feel what's happened in the story. And it also usually gets you ready for things that are coming. It's the same thing in the Torah. There's many moments in the Torah that are slowed down with poetry. And actually, they're usually called songs. But at every turning point in the story, there's a poem at all these structurally significant places. Which means whenever the Torah shifts from Adam and Eve in the Garden of, in the Garden of Eden to their exile, there's a poem in Genesis 3. When it shifts from following the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons, to the people of Israel... There's a poem first in Genesis 49. After the 10 plagues and God rescuing Israel from Egypt through the sea, there's a poem in Exodus 15 before their wilderness wanderings. At the end of the Israel's wandering in the wilderness, 
There's poems in Numbers 23 and 24. And then at the end of the entire Torah, that's also capped with a poem, Deuteronomy 32 and 33. Right now, we're just going to do a flyover of what the poems teach altogether. And one of the most important messages they send is that the person they're about, the king of Israel, who is later called the Messiah, will suffer and die, but also reign forever. You should know that in the last series, Introduction to the Torah, we spent three episodes really unpacking the imagery in these poems. So if you haven't listened to that series, and this kind of seems way too fast, you should listen to those three episodes where we slowly unpack all of these poems. These poems all talk about Israel's future. Most of them actually directly say they're about the future. Here's how the poem After the Patriarchs in Genesis 49 does it. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, so that I may tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. This is the same way that each of the major structural poems work, and most of them even use that same phrase, the days to come. They're saying that they're about the days to come, the days in the future. Then after Jacob's poem, where he blessed his sons and told them he's talking about the future, the poet identified those blessings as not actually directly for Jacob's sons, but actually for the tribes of Israel who descend from each of his sons. He says, right after the poem, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, with the blessing appropriate to him. So what he means by all the blessings appropriate to him for each son is that each son's blessing is described is given with imagery from that son's actual life story in the book of Genesis. So the poem draws on the son's actual life to to show what the future will be like for that son's tribe. That's what it means when he says all these sons are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. So it's tying the son's life together with the tribe in the future who will come from them. So all the poems, not just this one in Genesis 49, but all the ones we talked about, Genesis 3, 49, Exodus 15, uh, Numbers 23 and 24, Deuteronomy 32 and 33, they all share the same themes and build on each other. They talk about someone from the tribe of Judah who will reign as king forever. The poem at the end of Genesis says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Genesis 49.10 But at the same time, they talk about someone who would be righteous, like Joseph. He would be a ruler, yet he would also suffer and even die. In the last poem in the Torah about Joseph, Deuteronomy 33, it calls him the firstborn ox. Specifically, in the language it was written in, Hebrew, it calls him the firstborn shore, which is a, a specific type of ox. There's multiple types of ox in the Hebrew Bible. And this one, the shore, is a very specific animal in the Torah. In the Torah, there's a command that every firstborn must be sacrificed. This has to do with God saving all of the firstborn Israelites from death uh, when all the firstborn Egyptians were killed during the Exodus. So this is actually drawing on something in the past again and talking about the future. And when uh, God saved Israelite firstborns from this plague of killing the firstborns, it's a reminder that they belong to God. 
and that God is their rescue. So this mandate that Israel has to sacrifice all firstborns of every animal is to remember that they were rescued from Egypt and that they belong to God. But just notice, this is very important, the firstborn human must be redeemed. So the firstborn human is not put to death, but it should die. So instead of dying, God has them redeem it, buy it back, paid for another way so that the firstborn human is not put to death because God doesn't want human sacrifices. The God of the Hebrew Bible is consistently repulsed by human sacrifices. So every human must be redeemed. Every animal can be redeemed. Every Sorry, every firstborn animal can be redeemed except for three animals. So that's true except for three animals. Every firstborn animal in Israel must be put to death or redeemed. Bought and redeemed means, again, paid for another way so that it can live. And the firstborn shore, which is the future Joseph-like person, remember Joseph the, in, in this poem, the future Joseph-like person is called a firstborn shore. The shore is one of the only three animals that the firstborn cannot be redeemed. The firstborn shore is always sacrificed. And this poem draws attention, Deuteronomy 30, 33, draws attention to the fact that this person, like Joseph, who's a prince among his brothers, will not only be a shore, but he'll be a firstborn shore. He says, May these rest on the head of Joseph, on the pate of him who is prince among his brothers. A firstborn shore, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With him, he shall gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. They are the tens thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. That's Deuteronomy 33, 16, and 17. So notice that the same Joseph, who is a sacrificial bull, a firstborn shore, will also have victory over all the people of the earth. And that's actually exactly what Genesis 49 said about the person descended from Judah, and to him shall be obedience of the peoples. So I just want you to already notice that really on every level, these poems are tied together. They're tying the imagery of Joseph and this person who descends from Judah together. Later, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings all pick up this imagery and together describe Mashiach, the Messiah, as a suffering servant like Joseph and a king from the line of Judah descended from King David. So here's something really interesting. Many Jewish sages and rabbis have noticed these two portraits of Messiah in the Hebrew Bible. The Messiah like Joseph who suffers and even dies, and then one from the line of David who rules as king. In rabbinic Judaism, they've made sense of these two portraits by saying there will be two different Messiahs, a Messiah ben Joseph and a Messiah ben David. So one from the line of Joseph and one from the line of David. Most people have never heard that Judaism teaches two messiahs, but the two messiah idea is all over rabbinic literature. It's in the Talmud, the Midrashim, the Zohar, the Responsa. It's really all over. The rabbis aren't making it up, though. They're getting it from the Hebrew Bible. They read the Hebrew Bible and see that the Messiah will suffer and die and that he will reign forever. But the Torah, the prophets, and the writings each take great care to blend this imagery, like we saw already a little bit. The suffering servant like Joseph imagery is blended together with the reigning king imagery to show that it's not two people, two messiahs, it's really one person who will accomplish both roles. Look at Numbers 24, which basically copies and pastes 
from the other poems in the Torah to combine the Joseph and Judah imagery. On our YouTube channel, we have three illustrated videos explaining how it specifically does this. It's called, What is the Torah About? The Poetry. Put it in the show notes as well. What the whole Hebrew Bible teaches, starting with the Torah, is that the Messiah is going to suffer and die before he reigns. Because do you know what would happen if he didn't deal with our hearts first and decided to just snap his fingers like Thanos and remove all the evil out of the world? All humanity would be gone. Actually, God's already shown us what that would look like if he wiped evil out of the world all at once. Just take a look at the story of Noah. The flood was God wiping evil off the earth. And what that meant was wiping humanity off the earth. Because the source of evil is our own hearts. Both before and after the flood, God says the human heart is only evil. Look at Genesis 6 and Genesis 8. Right after the flood, evil continued because God preserved a human family, Noah's family. So I hope this is coming into focus for you a little bit. The story of the Bible is about God removing evil from the world. But evil is being spread by humanity in every generation, by you and by me. So the Bible is showing God working to remove evil without eradicating the human race who is spreading that evil. And this master plan is all centering on the prophet like Moses, who is part of the family of Abraham, the family that God promised to use to undo the curse that Adam brought back in the beginning. The people of Israel will all have to listen to the prophet like Moses. And then the poetry tells us a lot more about the prophet like Moses, this poetry that we're looking at now. Remember, we know that the focus of the poetry is the prophet like Moses because Numbers 24, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, shows that this person that is all about is a future king and he will be brought out of Israel like Moses for a new exodus. It's poetically promising a prophet like Moses, just like Deuteronomy 18, also a major structurally significant moment, also promises a prophet like Moses. It's one and the same. So the prophet like Moses, who we already know will be rejected by his people, like Moses was often rejected by his people, he will also suffer like Joseph and conquer all the evil powers of the earth and reign forever. He's going to suffer and die and he's going to live forever. So I hope you can have some sympathy for the Jewish sages who looked at this and figured there must be two messiahs. These descriptions do seem to conflict. It's really not hard to see that it'd be easy to make sense of this by going, it's got to be two different people. But as we try to uncover what the authors want us to understand, we're noticing that they go through great pains to try to tie these descriptions together into one person, like we've already talked about. So let's skip ahead for a moment. I think this is a good place to kind of pause and just take a look at Jesus to kind of help us um, just appreciate the gravity of this. Jesus, a descendant of King David, suffered like Joseph. He suffered more than Joseph. Jesus died sacrificially in our place to deal with our hearts and our relationship with God, which is the role of Messiah that's more associated with Joseph, who also was a righteous man who suffered severely. But Jesus didn't stay dead. After three days, he rose from the grave. He appeared to more than 500 people, and then he ascended into heaven. Right now, there isn't world peace yet. Look around. There's conflict everywhere because Jesus hasn't returned to reign as king on David's throne yet. But he hasn't abandoned his followers either. He's given us his spirit to change our hearts so that we will have real peace no matter what circumstances we're in. 
But why hasn't Jesus returned yet? Because when he returns, he'll be reigning on David's throne as king. He'll return to separate the wicked from those who trust in him. He's delaying and delaying to give more time for you to trust in him. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but he also won't wait forever. He will come back in power and everyone will know he's back. He'll reign on the throne of David. He'll restore the Jewish people to the land when they believe in him, and he will get evil out of the world. But remember that getting evil out of the world would mean getting any human being who doesn't trust in and follow him getting them out of the world. So Jesus dealt with the root of evil, our own hearts first, so that we would have good news that if we do trust in him, we will not suffer the same fate as the people who reject him. Genesis 3, 14 to 15. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the livestock and more than any animal of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will make enemies of you and the woman, and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Genesis 3, 14-15 Let's review. The Hebrew Bible is all about building expectation for the ultimate king of Israel. This king of Israel will rule all the nations and conquer all the evil powers of the world. This is great news, but it could also be scary news when you realize that the same story teaches that our hearts are part of this evil problem. We don't want to be conquered, but that's good because God loves us and he's made a way for us to live through the Messiah's sacrificial death. God sent his son, Jesus, to pay for the sins of the world so that anyone who trusts in him will not be wiped away with everyone else, the evildoers, but will have life forever. For those who trust in the Messiah, we remain in the world that is, for now, filled with suffering, death, and evil. But we're filled with the Spirit of God who gives us inner peace. And through the Spirit of God, our hearts are restored. So we won't keep continuing to spread evil. Instead, we can follow and learn to be good by following the good king, the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, has come and he suffered the price for our sins. And he will come back in power to reign on the throne of David and remove all evil from the world, which will mean removing all those who refuse to let the Spirit of God restore their hearts. Let's meditate on this together. I'm going to ask some questions, really think about these questions. And if you need to pause so you can think or to pray, go ahead and do that. First question, what suffering do you notice in the world around you right now? Next question, how might the Spirit of God keep you at peace amidst all that suffering? And last, how is the return of King Jesus a message of hope for our world? God, 
There's so much evil and suffering in the world around us, and we've been a part of spreading this evil too. But you offer peace through the Prince of Peace, Jesus. And we know that when we believed in him, you filled us with your spirit to restore our hearts. So please show us how to rest in your peace today, so that we won't be shaken by all this pain in the world. And last, Jesus, we ask that you would come back quickly. We need you, and this world needs you. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Torah Guide Podcast. If you want to meditate on this lesson some more, check out the video and reading plan that go along with it, either at thetorahguide.com or on Instagram and Facebook. The Torah Guide is a totally crowdfunded nonprofit that makes all sorts of resources to help you read the Hebrew Bible and discover Jesus, including this podcast, animated videos, devotionals, reading plans, and more. And we're able to do it because of generous people like you. So if you want to be a part of helping people discover how the Hebrew Bible points to Jesus, you can sign up to become a monthly supporter or make a one-time gift at thetorahguide.com slash give.